What up, what up, folks? What's going on? Welcome to the Spun Today podcast, the only podcast that is anchored in writing, but unlimited in scope. I'm your host, Tony Ortiz, and I appreciate you listening. In this episode, I speak about my Hudson Valley bike tour experience, which I completely forgot to tell you guys about a few episodes back. I also speak about the latest congressional hearing on UFOs. I also speak about watching John Wick 4. And lastly, wrap up by saying goodbye to Ari Shafir's Skeptic Tank podcast. Stick around for all that good stuff. But first, I wanted to tell you all about a way that you can help support this podcast if you so choose. Your support really means a lot. It helps me keep the lights on at the in the proverbial Spun Today studios and really does help motivate me to continue doing what I love, which is putting out more episodes, more content, and making even more time to write. So again, thank each and every one of you that have already shown your support in some way, shape, or form, even if it's just by listening to the pod itself. If you want to take your support one step further, here is one quick way that you can do just that. Then we'll jump right into the episode. Do you want to start your own podcast? Have a great show idea that you want to get out into the masses, but don't know quite how to get it from your head out into the world? Well, here's how. Use the podcast host, Libsyn. That's who I use to bring the Spun Today podcast to you. And now you can use them the same way. Using the promo code SPUN, S-P-U-N, you can open up your Libsyn account today and get two months of free podcast hosting. Here's how it works. Once you record your show, you upload it to your Libsyn account, where you can fill in your episode notes, upload your podcast art, and schedule when you want your episodes to release. Once you do that, Libsyn will take care of the rest. They'll distribute your show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and all the other podcatchers that you choose, instantaneously and seamlessly. Again, go to Libsyn.com and use the promo code SPUN, S-P-U-N, to get two months free. Or use the affiliate link that's in the episode notes. Again, that's Libsyn.com, promo code SPUN. Take that great podcast idea from out of your head and put it out into the world. The Hudson Valley Bike Tour in 2023 sponsored by the good folks over at Bike New York. Now, I've done the Hudson Valley Bike Tour a couple times in the past. The first time with my brother, shout out to David, Sponsored Alum, as well as with my friend Pablo, shout out to Pablo, also Sponsored Alum. It was actually the very first bike tour marathon that I ever got involved in, that I ever did. And I think I've told the story here in the podcast, but just a quick recap of that one. I think it was back in 2012, I want to say, maybe 2013, but I think 2012. And I just got my bike. I wanted to get into into riding. I went out to train with my brother and Pablo who were already into cycling. A couple of times I went out with them, but I didn't take it seriously. At the time I was dating my girlfriend, now wife, Zoila. At the time I was dating my girlfriend and now wife, Zoila. Shout out to Zoila, also Spontarela. And we were actually in a long distance relationship. I lived in New York and she was living in Massachusetts at the time. So what we would do is every weekend we would alternate. Either she would come down to New York or I would go up to Massachusetts. The weekends is when David and Pablo would go training for 
this Hudson Valley bike tour that we signed up for. So I did happen to go with them a couple times, literally probably like twice, but didn't do much training at all and spent the time instead chilling with my girl. I figured I would just, you know, will myself through it. <laughs> will myself through the marathon which we signed up for the 55 mile version of the tour long story short my brother and pablo finished hours before me in the middle of or at least when i was in the middle of the tour we all got alerts on our phones of a monsoon or tornado warning or some shit like that in the area and it just started pouring rain so literally for 15 20 miles plus it was just pouring rain non-stop so I had to deal with that, plus the fact that, again, I was completely out of cycling shape and hours behind everyone else. By the time I finished, which I actually did finish, the folks at Bike New York, which again, sponsor and put together these events, they were breaking down the finish line festival, which lasts, again, hours after the entire race is completed and it's filled with food and booze and music and stuff like that for people to just wind down and chill after the race. They were literally breaking everything down, like the tents and food stations and all that by the time I finally crossed the finish line. So that's my experience with the very first Hudson Valley tour that I did. Then I did it once after that, I think 2019-ish. I think it was the last tour I did before the pandemic where we, we took a few years off. And I did that one with Pablo, went a lot smoother. We actually signed up for the 30 mile one, which leads me to 2023. So the way it works is that you have the option to sign up for one of four paths, if you will, or course lengths, rather. You can sign up for a 15-mile run, a 30-mile run, a 55-mile run, or a 100-mile run. And I think there's a 75-mile run option, actually, or I might be misremembering that. I think it's 15, 30, 55, and 100, the century mile run, which will never see me on it. So 2019, we did the 30 mile. This year in 2023, we signed up for the same. And if you guys remember, the I signed up for the five borough last year. And when we were literally about to head to the event, I realized both my tires were completely flat for some reason. And they just wouldn't take air no matter what we did. And instead of, you know, going all the way there, hoping that there were, you know, like an open bike shop or that they could fixed my issue, we bitched out and didn't do the five borough. Similarly, for this latest Hudson Valley 2023 tour, I checked my bike the night before and I had a flat tire. I was like, what the fuck? I had just a week before, the weekend before, picked it up from getting a full tune up so the bike should be in as pristine condition as possible. So I checked my bike the night before, see that it has a flat in the, the bike room of my building. It has one of those electric air pumps for all the bikes. I fill it up, I'm like, all right, I'm good. Good thing I checked. So tomorrow I just gotta wake up, grab my bike and, and bounce. The next morning, flat tire again. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm literally thinking someone in my building's fucking with me or something. I'm thinking my tire, what is going on? I fill it up again, take my bike, load it up to the bike racks. We head out to Hudson Valley. It's about an hour and a half, two hours away from us. We get there, park the car, grab my bike, flat tire again. What the fuck? And we're already there. I'm like, fuck it. Let's just walk over there and see if there's a bike fixing station. Thankfully, and again, shout out to the good folks at Bike New York and Trek, which actually had a bike fixing station set up there. And there were a few people online. I waited my turn and, and basically they replaced the tube of the tire. They said the tube was actually fine, 
They, they found some shards within the rim itself, which seemed to be every time I would fill it up, you know, it would stay full. But once I would park the bike and let it sit for a while, those little shards would empty the air very, very slowly, which was the other interesting thing because it this continually kept happening, but only after I would park the bike. I could ride the bike, fill it up with air, ride the bike for 10, 15, 20 miles you know, while we were training and it would be fine. But then after I parked, parked the, the bike, the next day it would be empty. So it was only when it sat. So I was good for the race, for the marathon rather, and we got going. It was a nice run. It was super hot. Hudson Valley is very hilly, which while I was doing it reminded me why I had this false memory of I liked it more than doing the five borough. Although the five borough is dope because it's like you get to ride through all five boroughs, streets, tunnels, bridges that are all close to traffic. So you get to see different parts of the city in that way. But then you have to cross the Verrazano Bridge at the end, which is a bitch. Such a long, steep incline. And the Hudson Valley is different in that one, it's not close to traffic. So you are in streets and stuff like that with traffic, but it's Hudson Valley, it's not as populated as, as New York City, for example. And it's very scenic, a lot of greenery. You do cross a bridge, at least one. You ride through a park for a long length of it, but you're also in streets and it's very hilly. You have a lot of hills, a lot of ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs. Not as long as, for example, the Verza Bridge, but there's just so many of them. So while I was doing that, I was like reminded of not liking Hudson Valley. Then, so remember, I signed up for the 30 mile one this time again. I'm at around mile 25, maybe 26-ish, having a tough time, tired. I had trained for it, but just tired, fucking dealing with all the hills. It's super hot and humid, but I'm close to the end, right? It's like 25, 26 miles in, and then my fucking quad tightens up on both my legs at first. So then I have to get off the bike. If it's never, it has happened to me before. So if it hasn't happened to you before, I'll try to describe it. It's picture the way your knees lock or like your elbows lock, you stretch them out and you just lock them in place. Picture your quad, the muscle on your quad, right? So your thighs, the top of your thighs. Picture those locking and tightening up, which then makes your leg straighten out and you can't bend it because it's locked in place, your quad. So then I have to get off the bike and literally with my hands rubbing the muscle, just rubbing it, rubbing it, punching it, you know, trying to get it to unlock. Like, yo, let's go. What the fuck? Such a weird, uncomfortable feeling. And it happens from muscle exhaustion. Usually, though, after, you know, you could walk it off, you could, you know, rub it out. And you see people while you're riding, you know, going through the same thing. They pull over to the sides, you know, take a breather. It happened to me actually my first time doing the, the Hudson Valley in that 55 mile run. Happened to me multiple times. And it was scary because I didn't know what the fuck it was. This time I knew what it was, but I was just so done. I had thought about quitting like 10 miles before and just dealing with hill after hill after hill, up and down, up and down, up and down. And no excuses. I completely bitched out. I'm three to four miles away from the finish line. My quads tightened up. It's not loosening. You know, I try for a while not loosening up so I physically couldn't ride and I wound up calling in reinforcements shout out again to the good folks at bike New York they do give you the option if you get hurt if you get sick or anything like that you can call the coordinators of the event 
and they'll send a van or something to pick you up and take you the rest of the way, which ultimately is what I wanted them. And it's after I made the call, you know, I had to wait probably 10 minutes or so after making the call, 10, 15 minutes. So I'm there, I'm still rubbing it out. It's starting to feel better. I'm like, fuck, I, can, I think I can make it now. But I had already called them, you know, some people riding by and, and the biking, the cycling community is pretty cool in that they look out for each other. Everybody that passed by were like, yo, you okay? You good? You need anything? And, you know, give me words of encouragement to each other. One dude passed by. He was like, the dance got to be near, bro. We're close by. I think it's just over that, that one more hill and that's it. The rest is like downhill from here. But I had already bitched out. I had called. The car was on the way. And I even text with the, the person. They told me to text them my location. I told them, should I like bike a little bit and then let them know where I'm at when they get closer? Should I try to go a little bit more? And they said, no, just stay where you're at because that's the direction that we gave them. So yeah, I did that. Stood in place. If I had signed up for the 15 mile one, I would have been, you know, done with the, the tour, you know, 10 miles before, 11 miles before, which is again, not an excuse, but yeah. They picked me up, drove me the other, you know, three or four miles to the end. I cycled down to the Finnish festival and there, you know, you get to listen to live music, grab a beer, get some food, you get your finishing medal, which again, had I signed up for the 15 mile one and bitched out before the 15 miles, I would feel bad about having. But if folks get it for the 15 miles, I'm definitely getting it for my, you know, 26 point whatever miles that I completed of the 30. <laughs> and you also get a, a finishing t-shirt. And yeah, just relax for a while, taking the lake, taking the bridge, the views, and it was ultimately a good time. And lastly, we signed up for a second ride this year, which we have never done before we normally are like one and done for the year you know, we train up for for a couple months prior to either the hudson valley or the five borough and then we're done with with riding until next year's season but this year we opted into doing a second run it's called the twin lights ride it's in new jersey so definitely don't expect it to be as hilly as the hudson valley although i've never done it before but it's in jersey and we'll definitely see and we're doing another 30 miles there. So we'll definitely keep you folks posted on that after it happens. So far, as of this recording, in the end of August, after the Hudson Valley, I've only trained one more time. I think we did, I want to say 15 miles, 15 miles, or maybe a 20 mile, 15 to 20 miles. So hoping to get at least, you know, two more training sessions in prior to the Twin Lights ride, which again is October 1st. But we shall see. We'll keep you guys posted. And that, folks, was my Hudson Valley 2023 tour experience. Congressional hearings on UFOs. On July 26th, 2023, three military veterans testified as whistleblowers in front of Congress to blow the lid off of the government's secrecy and cover-up when it comes to UFOs and alien life on other planets. And it was must-see TV. Now, I don't know where you guys fall on the spectrum of, do you think that we humans and, you know, the other species here on Earth are alone in the entire universe in existence or not? Me personally, I don't think we are. To quote Carl Sagan and movie contact for example where they requote him it would be an awful waste of space if we were alone do i know for sure can i point to some concrete evidence of 
or proof that we're not alone? Of course not. I don't think any of us can. Hence the question. Hence the allure of the topic, of the subject. But I love this type of shit and have always been intrigued by it. And not just the conspiratorial side of, you know, space and alien life and stuff like that. I just mean like space stuff in general. Whether it's Elon and what he's doing with SpaceX and changing the game in that realm. Whether it's NASA, whether it's Neil deGrasse Tyson and Star Talk Radio, Hubble's telescope images and so on and so forth. I'm just fascinated by it all. So when these three gentlemen testified and they aired it, it was an absolute treat for me. Now, for those of you who don't know, the three whistleblowers were, again, three military veterans, starting with Ryan Graves, which was the executive director of Americans for Safe Aerospace. Then we have retired Air Force Major David Grush. He was the main guy in this, the main whistleblower here. And then we have retired Navy Commander David Fravor which he of the three is the only one that I knew of. He had been on Rogan's podcast. He had been on Lex Friedman's podcast. He was the Navy pilot who famously was behind the Tic Tac footage video that exists that I'll link to in the episode notes if you guys are interested in checking it out. But it was essentially he was flying his jet on a training mission and they see this Tic Tac-like device or something, you know, flying... I forget, you know, 100, 200 yards away or something like that. And it's doing shit like going from 60,000 miles in the air or feet in the air, rather, to one foot above the water in a matter of seconds. Like things that defy what our known technology is capable of with no signs of propulsion, etc. Going super fast. And he was able to lock his radar, I think is the proper terminology there although don't quote me on that but he was able to lock into it and track its speed and its movement although he couldn't physically keep up with it he was able to do so through the technology available on his jet and that footage was released to the public some years back i think it's from 2014 or something like that and it's like one of those holy grail type of pieces of evidence that folks that are like the we're definitely not alone aliens exist 100 percent, folks that's something that they always point to so i knew of him i did not know of the other two gentlemen i saw before watching because i actually watched the entire it's two plus hours two and a half hours plus of testimony in front in front of congress and i watched the entire thing but before i did i saw i just clips of it online on instagram on twitter and the main whistleblower, David Grush, honestly, based on the clips, just seemed like, for lack of a better word, a whack job. I was like, this guy just looks crazy. Something about him or the way he's answering things, in at least in these clips, I don't believe a word of what he's saying. Now, when you watch the entire thing in full context, he actually comes off as very poised, super knowledgeable, and credible. Now, that's just, obviously, I don't know for sure. That's just... Maybe it's my bias, maybe it's wishful thinking, but that was my gauge of him after watching the full congressional hearing in its full context. I think one of the ways to know for sure if he's full of shit or not is if there's any follow-up to many of the promises he made, or promises might not be the right word, but the offerings he made during his testimony, 
to the members of Congress, which was to provide additional information, specific names, specific proofs, but only under something called a skiff or skiff conditions. My understanding of what a skiff is, <clears throat> is that for highly sensitive matters or something like that, a skiff is a room that's designed to block out any and all recording devices, electronics, you know, phones, computers, nothing is allowed in, in the skiff itself. And he said in that type of, you know, top secret secure setting, he would give them answers to some of the questions that they were asking, which he said by military standards and protocol, he could not give publicly in a setting like this, which was the public congressional hearing, which was fascinating. But yeah, if he came through with all those things, then I think that just adds an additional layer of credibility to, to him and everything that he was alleging in the public hearings. Now, let me just get a couple of other fun things out of the way before I get into some more important takeaways, in my opinion. Not that, that the fun stuff is unimportant or anything, but you'll see what I mean. So first thing is shout out to Jeremy Corbell, which was sitting right there in the front row, right behind the whistleblowers. Jeremy Corbell, for those of you who don't know, is the leading researcher and investigator and documentarian of all extraterrestrial government cover-up ufo etc related stuff and by leading i mean in my opinion and you know one of the most credible and actually has journalistic integrity and cite sources and famously did the bob lazar documentary which is a good one for you guys to, to check out so on and so forth but yeah he was there in the front row definitely cool to see him there Something hilarious was that Tom DeLong, the singer of Blink-182, was actually referenced in the congressional hearing. He had like a shout out kind of <laughs> him and, uh, and the company he started called To The Stars Media. And for those of you who don't know, Tom DeLong, singer of Blink-182, he went on Rogan years ago, years ago. I want to say five, six, seven years ago, talking about, you know, he worked with government and he couldn't say with who but there's these you know stories that are going to start breaking and that the government is rebranding ufos to uaps and it's the first time i personally ever heard the term uap which is unidentified aerial phenomenon versus ufo which is unidentified flying object and all this stuff and he kind of came off like this is one of the singers of blink 182 the band he's off his rocker <laughs> something something's off but then to hear him referenced in this congressional hearing, which is the most legit place that this conversation can be taking place, is a fucking congressional hearing, right? It's not a documentary. It's not a podcast. It's not happening on some side conversation, radio show or something like that. It's under oath in front of the United States Congress, the subcommittee that's in charge of this type of stuff, that's in charge of defense and protecting the United States. So just his mention there was just like, what the fuck? Was he telling the truth the whole time? I just found that nuts. Now, here are some of the more important takeaways. And by important, I just mean more practical, whether you believe in UFOs or aliens or not, these are important points to take away from the occurrence of this congressional hearing, regardless of where you stand. You had members like... Congresswoman AOC, which is part of this subcommittee, AOC from New York, and Congressman Andy Biggs from Arizona, specifically asking questions to the whistleblowers of 
where should they look for certain things? Where should they look for certain information that backs up some of the testimony that he's giving? Where should they look for background related to this information? Where can they find files? Where can they find and get access to footage that he's referencing or that backs up his claims, etc.? Who can they speak to? Asking specific questions, kind of like my takeaway from that was if they don't know and they're this oversight committee that's supposed to be, you know, regulating this type of shit and they're asking in this matter of fact way of, yo, who or how the fuck can we get our hands on this type of information? They're completely blind and oblivious to what is going on if it is in fact going on. So that was a big takeaway for me either way. Congressman Gates of Florida was another one who Congressman Gates of Florida, and I'm going to play the clip for you guys, said the following in in speaking to being turned away from trying to obtain information about a UAP event. And here's some of what he had to say. Several months ago, my office received a protected disclosure from Eglin Air Force Base indicating that there was a UAP incident that required my attention. I sought a briefing regarding that episode and brought with me Congressman Burchett and Congresswoman Luna. We asked to see any of the evidence that had been taken by flight crew in this endeavor and to observe any radar signature as long as as well as to meet with the flight crew. We were not afforded access to all of the flight crew. And initially, we were not afforded access to images and to radar. Thereafter, we had a bit of a discussion about how authorities flow in the United States of America, and we did see the image. And we did meet with one member of the flight crew who took the image. The image was of something that I am not able to attach to any human capability, either from the United States or from any of our adversaries. And I'm somewhat informed on the matter, having served on the Armed Services Committee for seven years, having served on the committee that oversees DARPA and advanced technologies for several years. When we spoke with the flight crew, and when he showed us the photo that he'd taken, I asked why the video wasn't engaged, why we didn't have a FLIR system that worked. Here's what he said. They were out on a test mission that day over the Gulf of Mexico. And when you're on a test mission, supposed to have clear airspace not supposed to be anything that shows up and they saw a sequence of four craft in a clear diamond formation for which there is a radar sequence that i and i alone have observed in the united states congress one of the pilots goes to check out that diamond formation and sees a large floating what i can only describe as an orb again like i said not of any human capability that i'm that i'm aware of And when he approached, he said that his radar went down, he said that his FLIR system malfunctioned, and that he had to manually take this image from one of the lenses, and it was not automated in collection, as you would typically see in a test mission. So I guess I'll start with Commander Fravor. How should we think about the fact that this craft that was approached by our pilot had the capability of disarming a number of the sensor and collection systems on that craft. Well, I think this goes to that national security side. You can go back through history of things showing up at certain areas and disabling our capabilities, which is disheartening. 
And for us, I mean, like I said, it, it completely disabled the radar on the aircraft when it tried to do it. And the only way we could see it is passively, which is how he got that image. So I think that's a, that's a concern on what are these doing, not only how do they operate, but their capabilities inside to do things like this. And, and how should we think about forecraft moving in a very clear formation, equidistant from one another, in a diamond? In all of the phenomenon, perhaps, Mr. Grave, that you've analyzed, have we ever seen multiple craft in a, in a single formation? I have one particular case, and that was during the gimbal incident. The recording on the AT FLIR system shows a single object that rotates. You hear the pilots refer to a, a fleet of objects that is not visible on the FLIR system, and, and that was something that I witnessed during the debrief as part of the radar data on this. So I'm going to cut it off there. You guys could definitely go listen to the, to the rest of it, and I encourage you to, just for the full context. But again, my main takeaway there is how in the dark or how competing interests are at play, right? So you have the military industrial complex, I'm gonna just name it that, although it's comprised of you know folks both in the government sector, the private sector that comprise some of these entities and, and groups that may or may not be concealing information, but whoever was on the opposite side of who, as Gate, Congressman Gates said, they had to reinform them on how the hierarchy of power, I'm paraphrasing, the hierarchy of power flows in the United States government. And only then was he able to get some of the information that, that he was seeking. Whoever was on the opposite side of that, whatever that entity is, whatever quote unquote team they're playing for, that's what I found fascinating about that little exchange there. Who are they? Why are they keeping it on the wraps? And how are they keeping it on the wraps? More importantly, which leads to my next takeaway here. You have the chairman of the subcommittee. I think it was the chairman. I want to say Congressman Chaffetz, but I could be wrong there. Someone double check me on that, but was pissed about the fact, and he shared how the Pentagon fails their audits yearly. They failed their audits five years in a row, and they have billions of dollars unaccounted for completely, just like we don't know where that money is, as well as over 60% of its assets, of its known assets, also unaccounted for. And it's just, aside from the fact that they fail their audit on a yearly basis, like there's nothing else after that. For example, I'll give you a, a general big example. I work in finance, as some of you know, for an institution that does work with auditors. And if we fail something within an audit, Changes have to be implemented immediately, proof of those changes, follow-ups to make sure those changes work, possible fines, so on and so forth. There's a, it doesn't just stop at the audit being failed. You know what I mean? So again, who are those folks in the Pentagon or on the other side of those failed audits that apparently have no accountability? And are those unaccounted for, and this is where the conspiracy theory comes in, or are those unaccounted funds going towards these like shadow government programs? Now to Mr. Grush's point, one of his statements, again, Mr. Grush being the, the main whistleblower, when asked by Congresswoman Macy, M-A-C-E, I may be saying that incorrectly, Mace, Macy, when asked what agencies, what co government contractors, etc., should be called in to... A, con a congressional hearing like this one to discuss programs 
and how they're being funded, etc. Like, where's the money coming from and what programs exist within this realm? Gersh said that he could give that information immediately after the hearing. He couldn't give it in a public setting, but he said that he can provide them a list of hostile and also non-hostile witnesses immediately after the congressional session in, again, one of those skiff settings or whatever. At which point, a lot of the people that were there in attendance, they like woohooed and clapped and it was a, a moment. But again, that shadowy governmental cover-up type of thing, that's where I have the more practical, regardless on if you believe there's aliens or not, or if that has anything to do with anything, those questions still remain. And Congressman Burleson from Missouri, which was very skeptical, you know, said, you know, there he definitely doesn't believe in aliens or anything like that came out the gate with that type of demeanor and, and statement. He asked questions like, could these, you know, retrieved vehicles, because Grush also alluded to the fact that we have shot down and retrieved some of these UAPs, as well as non-human biologics, quote unquote, that's what he called it, and crafts. So Congressman Burleson asked, you know, could these just be weapons and vehicles from other secret departments within the government that we just don't know of, which again ties back to my initial or my main concern and takeaway here or my practical concern and takeaway here, which is if that's the case, who's running the show there? And circling back to what Grush says, which is that the U.S. has beings or quote-unquote non-human biologics and crafts in their possession. A lot of people after the fact were questioning like, what the fuck does non-human biologics mean? A cow is technically a non-human biologic. He needed to elaborate there, but obviously he didn't. Now, Grush did allude to that, like the shot callers within this realm of this like shadowy government, whatever you want to call it, are a mix of folks that are in the government and folks that are out of the government and part of major corporations. He also referenced something called the Gang of Eight, which sounded interesting to me. I was meaning to look into it, but I haven't yet. So if any of you guys are listening know what that is, definitely hit me up and let me know. But yeah, man, what a tangled fucking web we weave. What an interesting time we live in as well. But yeah, I definitely recommend that you folks check out the, if you're interested in this kind of thing, but just from a historical perspective, you know, it's the first time that something, a topic like this related to UFOs and UAPs was openly and honestly spoken about in a congressional setting like this with the most arguably, not even arguably, with the most credible witnesses and whistleblowers ever in like the history of the whole UFO folklore scene, if you will. So just from a historical perspective, it's an unprecedented event that occurred. And if you're interested in this topic, this type of thing in and of itself, then it's definitely a fascinating watch. And I will link to the full congressional hearing in the episode notes, but you guys can easily find it on, on YouTube if you just search for it, but I'll definitely link to it in the episode notes to make it easier for you guys. And that, folks, was my little recap and review of the congressional hearings on UFOs. John Wick 4. By all accounts, the fourth and final installation in the John Wick series. Although it does end, spoiler alert, with a slight nod to the actual ending not being all that it seems. And they actually foreshadowed as much in the final jousting scene leading up to the end. But John Wick 4, here is the official synopsis. John Wick uncovers a path to defeating the high table. But before he can earn his freedom, Wick must face off against a new enemy with powerful alliances across the globe. 
and forces that turn old friends into foes. And as we like to do here on the Spun Today podcast, I want to shout out the writers. Because if we don't shout out the writers here on the Spun Today podcast that is anchored in writing, who will? John Wick 4 was written by Shay Hatton, Michael Finch, and Derek Kolstad. Shout out to the writers. Now I wanted to start off by sharing with you guys a fun fact that you may not know, which is that the muscle car that John Wick drives in John Wick 4 is a 1971 Plymouth Cuda. And it's in the movie because in the first John Wick, for example, John Wick drove a 69 Mustang, which is a badass muscle car, but was also like a a gift from his wife in the movie. But the fun fact is that Joe Rogan had always mentioned in, in his podcast after the first, second, third John Wick that the real badass muscle car that John Wick should be driving is the Plymouth Cuda, the 1971. And when Rogan had the director, Chad Stahelski, on the pod, he confirmed as much that the reason why he put the Plymouth Cuda into John Wick 4 was because of Rogan. So I thought that was that was pretty dope. Shout out to podcast, man. Shout out to that fucking reach. Another fun fact that I learned on that episode, actually, if you guys want to check it out, I think it's episode, well, I don't think I can actually look it up for you guys right now. Episode 1995, 1995 of JRE. The director mentions that the John Wick story, the original character and story is loosely based on a book. It's not called John Wick, but a lot of the ideas came from that book. And I wish I could remember, and I can't find it, who wrote the book and, you know, what the book title is. If I do come across it, I'll definitely link to it in the episode notes in in case anybody's interested. However, he did say it's very loosely based and it's the movie's kind of nothing like the book. Supposedly the book, there's a few similarities in that he is a retired hitman. He wants out of life and that type of thing certain ideas of the high table and this group that shadow organization that controls it all certain tidbits came from the book but in terms of what we know and love of the john wick franchise which is mainly the killing and the violence and the fight scenes and the action none of that is within the book the book itself he said that like one or two people die in the entire book something like that so definitely not something to check out if that's what you gravitate towards for these john wick movies as I definitely do, but I just thought that was that was interesting and fascinating how, I guess, a relatively unknown story or book can plant a seed that grows and flourishes into this blockbuster four movie mega hit franchise that is John Wick, even though it's in a completely different form and whatnot. It's like you'd never know what it is that sparks the inspiration in something else. That's pretty, pretty cool. A couple lines of dialogue that I wanted to share with you guys that I really, really liked. Shout out once again to the writers. One of them is, friendship means little when it's convenient. Just so fucking true, right? It's like the that adage of fair weather friends. You know, when, when shit is sweet, when money's flowing, you're having good times, when things are enjoy, enjoyable, you have a lot of quote unquote friends and folks around you that are enjoying from that, which is where the convenience comes in. But once all or some of that goes away 
or conversely when times get rough when money's not flowing when there are no parties are no good times and you're in times of hardship that's when all those fair weather friends will poof disappear and the folks that you're left with that are still around are your true friends they're not there just because it's convenient so that's definitely one line that i enjoyed another one is a man's ambition shouldn't exceed his worth and that's definitely a sobering line if you're looking at it from a like self-reflective angle i've heard a similar line which is which i think was from the movie blow r.i.p to paul rubens by the way Wee Herman played a Derek for real in Blow. In that movie, there was a line that I love, something along the lines of, you know, when your ambition exceeds your talent. But this line here is slightly different in a man's ambition shouldn't exceed his worth. So it kind of has that un- undertone of, if you ain't worth shit, <laughs> don't even dream about being anything more. Kind of, a, kind of a defeating line there, but very interestingly put. I additionally enjoyed this fourth iteration of the movie based on a few of the characters that were very interesting i mean you have obviously the staple main characters like keanu reeves obviously who plays john wick Lawrence fishburne who plays the bowery king it was bittersweet to see lance reddick bitter in that he passed away as well r.i.p lance reddick who played sharon but it was sweet and you know being able to see him one last time which this was probably the last role he acted in. It was either this or White Man Can't Jump, but I think it was this. He had a Clancy Brown in, in this, which played the character of Harbinger. He is most known to me for being the asshole slash kind of cool guard towards the end from Shawshank Redemption, who was the right hand of the warden, who kind of looked out a little bit for Andy Dufresne as well. You have Ian McShane's character again plays winston we had a couple of dope new characters starting with in my opinion bill skarsgård who played marquise he's the main villain bad guy in this one who essentially wants to take over everything and wants john wick dead you have an amazing character played by donnie yen who plays kane he's this blind asian dude that is in the same line of work as john wick and also looking to like he wants out basically and he's given an ultimatum by the bill scars guard guy marquise to hunt down and kill john wick and then he'll be given his freedom and if not his granddaughter would be killed he was a great fucking character then you have one of my favorite characters in the whole movie called tracker played by shamir anderson he was this black dude with a dog that he had trained as a extension of himself that was also in the same line of work as John Wick. And he, similar to John Wick, seems to have a, a code, a moral compass within himself, aside from the fact that these are all contract killers. <laughs> but think, from a character development perspective, think like Omar from The Wire, how you know he was a bad dude, robber slash drug dealer, but had a code, you know? Every man's gotta have a code, quote unquote. Damn, then there was this other dude that I can't find his name i don't remember the character name and i can't tie that to the actual actor name but he played this again another guy in the same line of work a big fat dude that just wouldn't die he was super strong and the act he's actually in fat suit kind of similar to how they did with the kingpin was it or penguin i think the kingpin in the latest batman movie i was just a fat suit and a lot of makeup it was a similar deal here with this character but he did he did a really good job and he was an interesting, scary, strong, ruthless fucking 
foe that John Wick had to contend against. And then, as always, the fight scenes do not disappoint. You have a dope fight scene that starts off with an arrow being shot when they're hiding on the roof of the Continental and they're being ambushed, essentially. And this long fight scene ensues. And that ultimately spills out into the street and then he's dealing with cars coming for him and motorcycles and he's on foot and it's just sick, sick. There's another fight scene in this abandoned house, warehouse that he runs into. And they did something interesting from the cinematography, I guess, perspective, where they showed a view from above a couple different times throughout this these scenes that took place in this abandoned house. And it just looked really cool. Like it really worked. It felt like you're playing Zelda or something, you know? It just has that overhead top-down view. But it was an interesting way of seeing where people were and where they were headed towards. And then it would pan from that back to the normal first person view or or you know camera behind John Wick etc. I thought that was pretty cool. There's a flamethrower gun at one point that, that was fucking sick. And then of course the most amazing fight scene happens towards the end when he is going to this agreed upon rendezvous point and by he I mean John Wick where the dude that is planning on taking over the high table, Marquise, the Bills cards guard guy. I think he was already in power at that point. But via their protocol, he says the only way John Wick could have his freedom is if he agrees to duel. I called it a joust earlier. I meant duel. But instead of him dueling, he has the guy Kane duel in his place. Again, giving him the ultimatum that if he doesn't, you know, he's going to kill his, his granddaughter. And that if he does do it, he's further incentivized by the fact that he'll get his freedom. So on the way to this rendezvous point at Sunrise, the marquee character, you know, playing dirty as villains do, just throws everything and everyone at John Wick and wants him to be killed, you know, before that point in time, basically. So on the way to that duel, there's this huge outdoor staircase that he has to climb up very, very far, like going from the A train to the J train at Broadway Junction far, super long steps, like the Joker steps in the Bronx that they show in the movie, the Joker. And there's mad people that have the high ground coming down at John Wick. And he's just shooting and fighting and tossing and throwing and cutting and just fucking people up on the way up and getting knocked back down and fighting his way back up and getting knocked back down. And then the Kane guy, which he also has this moral compass about him, starts helping John Wick, even though at the top of the staircase, you know, they're going to have that duel. But he wants it to happen if it needs to happen the honorable way. So he's on John Wick's side. He's helping him. The other dude that I mentioned that I liked, the tracker character, he starts helping as well. And eventually, after a very long, very dope fight, scene uh, he makes it up there so spoiler alert by the way if you guys haven't seen the movie you probably don't want to hear this part but ultimately the duel happens and the way it works is that they the rules are they have to take like you know 20 steps apart and you know draw and shoot someone dies the other person wins that's it if they both miss or if they both are still alive then they take five or ten steps towards each other and to do it again until they're literally in front of each other so by the third shot, it looks like Kane got the best of John Wick. Even though Kane already got shot once or twice, John Wick as well, but then John Wick doesn't get up. So it shows him as dead, essentially. Then Marquise, the 
Bill Skarsgård, played by Bill Skarsgård, his pussy ass tells Kane, no, 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 give me the gun. I'm going to do the final shot, a shot in the head or something like that to John Wick. Now all of a sudden he wants to, he wants to be down, right? <laughs> he wants to be in it, in it. He goes to John Wick and then they point out how John Wick never fired his third shot. He's like, what? And then John Wick right there just gets up and shoots and kills Marquise. He was wounded though at that point from the second or third shot from before from Kane. And then they show John Wick eventually collapsing and they make it seem like he died. Now the conspiracy theory, if you will, is did he die or did he not? Earlier on, he had told Winston and the Bowery King that if he did die, he wanted to be taken home and laid to rest next to his late wife. And they show a scene at the very end of the movie with John Wick's tombstone and both Winston and the Bowery King there. And they say something snarky, something I don't remember exactly, but something to the effect of, would you have ever thought that you would have seen the day, you know, speaking to, you know, John Wick being dead. Then they kind of look at, look at each other and smile. And one of them says, nope, I never did. And it was kind of like a nod to, wait, is he dead? Is he not dead? Are you guys covering up? Are you guys... So this whole high table shit doesn't come back around again and want to kill John Wick. Are you guys giving him an out and faking his death so that nobody could ever come after him again and just leave him be type of thing? That's what it comes across as. Or it could very well be that, yeah, he's dead and they're going to tie out the series that way. And what I meant by the fact that they foreshadowed it, you know, him possibly still being alive with the scene directly before then was the fact that they showed him as dead before Marquise went up to shoot him just to, to make sure again, but he wasn't dead and he, you know, got up and shot Marquis unexpectedly. So I feel like that was kind of foreshadowing the fact that maybe he's not dead at the end and, you know, he'll be coming back down the line, but we'll see. What I will say is that bumping that theory or idea up against the director Chad Stahelski's appearance on JRE is that he did kind of make it seem that if if Keanu was down to do another one that he would definitely do it and he also alluded to their them being in talks of doing spin-offs with other characters like Halle Berry's character for example she was in I think John Wick 2 or 3 she loves the series like she she wants to do more and also a spin-off I think he said like a prequel type of thing series about the Continental and I think Winston and Sharon stuff like that something along those lines so if John Wick doesn't come back directly himself I would say I would think that we'll at least get other iterations from this franchise in the form of spin-offs and just to tie things out last thing I'll say is that I believe Derek Kolstad may be the gentleman that created the that wrote the the book that the John Wick character is based off of because according to IMDb, it says based on characters created by Derek Kolstad. Don't quote me on that part. There is a book that exists where some ideas came from that may or may not have been written by Derek Kolstad. But again, if I clarify those details, I will definitely update that information within the episode notes. Either way, John Wick 4, definitely recommend. It's worth a watch, especially if you guys are fans of the previous movies in this franchise it absolutely does not disappoint john wick 4 check it out ari shafir's skeptic tank i hate to end the podcast on a sad note but alas it's not all unicorns and rainbows folks ari shafir my favorite comic 
and one of my favorite podcasters has chosen after 12, almost 13 years of putting out gem after gem after gem of episodes on his Skeptic Tank podcast has chosen at the height of its popularity, at the height of its financial benefit generating, at the height of its creativity and awesomeness, some may even say, has chosen to cancel it, to stop it, to end it, to put an end to an era. And if you all know Ari, as I do not, although I have been a fan of his for over that decade and did meet him once actually and have a picture with him, I'll probably use that image as uh, when I put out clips of this episode. But if you all know Ari, none of those things in terms of financial gain and popularity and fame and stuff like that have ever been at the top of his priority list. He's first and foremost about his craft, which I've always appreciated about him, and about being free and feeling free, not feeling tied down to anything. So much so that in a situation like this where most of us mere mortals would have been like, fuck that, I'm going to continue the podcast. It's making more money than it's ever made. And as popular as it's ever been and i obviously love doing it but because it began feeling to him somewhat of a job at times and he felt it taken away from his true and number one love which is stand-up comedy he chose to cancel it which you have to respect but fucking sucks for us fans ari's been absolutely at the top of the list of my favorite podcasters literally probably top two after rogan And fun fact, which I have mentioned in the past, I believe, but I'll reiterate here. The very first episode of JRE that I ever listened to over a decade ago before it was cool, when Ari was a relatively unknown comic, when even Rogan was relatively unknown outside of comedy circles. The very first episode that I ever listened to, Ari was the guest. It was like episode 190 something. And by one, I don't mean a thousand. I mean, uh, literally a hundred and ninety something, or maybe it was even ninety something. But I think it was one ninety something or one thirty something or something like that. For some reason, I, I remember there a nine in there. And it was literally the second podcast of any that I had ever listened to before I even knew really what a podcast was. I had heard the term and I was literally just searching on my phone. What is a podcast? And the first one ever that I listened to was the White House speech that was recorded and replayed in podcast form it was a white house podcast or something like that it was a speech that obama gave and then the second one i bumped into was jerry and that episode with ari and the conversation was so fulfilling is the best way i I, I can put it it was i had never heard people speak like that so freely so openly so deeply so silly the conversation flowed and ebbed and all different forms and directions and in that moment i fell in love with the medium of podcasts and since never missed an episode of jre became a fan of ari's and started checking out his stuff including skeptic tank podcast became a fan of his stand-up and he became my favorite comedian in that way that you like when you feel that you discovered someone quote unquote would know about something and someone cool that nobody else knows about yet and ari's podcast i love for a lot of those same reasons in terms of his care and attention to detail for his craft. Now, the very last guest of Ari Shafir's Skeptic Tank was Ron Bennington, which I believe, I don't think I'm wrong on this, but I can be, 
that Ron Bennington is the Ron from Ron and Fez, which was a, and I'm drawing this just from things that I've heard on different episodes of different podcasts. So again, could be wrong, but I don't think so. And Ron and Fez is a morning radio show that comics actually enjoy doing and respect. These comics famously, you know, they, as they travel from city to city, go on morning radio, morning TV to promote their dates and try to sell tickets within the region that, that they're in. But it's a grueling thing for them. But the consensus behind Ron and Fez is that, you know, it's a dope show that they actually enjoy getting up for and doing. Ron Bennington, I believe, is the Ron from Ron and Fez. He has his own series of interviews, which I've only heard one, so I can't attest to what, what Ari says about him, just based off that one. But I did hear his interview with, uh, it's called Unmasked, the series, and I listened to the interview with Patrice O'Neill, which both Ari and he recommended folks listen to, and it was great. But Ari gives his style of interviewing, his interview style, he says it's an homage to Ron Bennington. And my interview style is an homage to Ari Shafir. That's how much I enjoy and loved Ari Shafir's Skeptic Tank, and still do. Now, I primarily on this show, I do these solo episodes, mainly, where I'll, you know, deep dive and review and speak to the writing and, you know, story conventions and structures of movies and books and TV shows, you know, speak about some current events and just whatever the fuck I want to speak about, right? Get some thoughts and ideas out. I also do the free writing session episodes, which are more to craft, you know, more specific to writing. I tell you about what I've been working on, how often I've been working on it. I share writing tips, share some of my own writing, reflect on it, etc. But another iteration of episodes that come out here on the Sponsor Day podcast feed are interviews, which are far and few between. But when I do do them, I do them in the style that I learned from Ari Shafir, which again, he learned from Ron Bennington, or at least is paying homage to. And that's where he takes a deep dive into his guests and a specific topic. And he doesn't mind if it meanders and it goes off track and they get silly or if they start talking about something deep, completely separate. They go off on tangents as well, but then he pulls it back on course to a specific topic. And he has a series of questions lined up aimed at that specific topic. And I just love that interview style. And they're not cookie cutter interviews by any stretch. They are, you hear from people that you otherwise, at least me, I've never heard of through any other medium or any other interview or any other, I have no insight into some of these folks' lives and already asked questions that I didn't know that I had. So he's interviewed prostitutes, drug addicts, drug dealers, other comedians, of course, one of which Brad Williams, for example, which is a little person. And he, but he interviewed him all about being a little person and just had uber specific questions like, what do you do in the bathroom? Because little people are known or at least some that to have short arms. So, So he's like, what do you do in the bathroom when you take a shit? Like he literally asked questions like that. And then Brad Williams says, oh, well, we actually have a contraption, you know, like a arm extender thing that we use to, to help out there. That's something that I didn't even know existed and a question that I didn't even know that I had. <laughs> you know what I mean? But when he asks it, you're like, oh, shit, yeah, it's true. How do they? He did also episodes with homeless people, with folks, uh, travelers, with writers, with episodes all about the first time a girl got their, her period and he interviewed a, a bunch of different women. 
oh, one of my favorites are comedy special breakdowns where he would go bit by bit with the comedian that filmed the special and then they'll break down the behind the scenes of how that joke came to be what the real story is behind the joke what's exaggerated what's not which is a masterclass on comedy in and of itself but just from a writing and creative perspective i love that type of shit he has episodes specific to open relationships and just so many fringe topics and people like that that are just absolutely fucking fascinating fuck i'm gonna miss that show and he also put me on to so many people just through when you take a deep dive into a person or, or, or an interest that a person has, it becomes contagious and you want to know more about that person in a way. And you get insights into that person as well. It's long form, not edited, no fluff, no bullshit. And you get to know if someone's, at least in my opinion, interesting or not, or if they're kind of a piece of shit, or if you want to know more about the person, etc. So it's definitely been the source of a lot of people that he put me onto that I wind up just like listening to Rogan's podcast put me onto Ari and I started listening to Ari's stuff and getting into his stuff, his podcast, his comedy. He also put me on, Ari put me on rather in that same way to folks like Dave Smith from the Part of the Problem podcast. He's a comic as well. If you want to know anything political and have a fairly nuanced because he's very libertarian, nuanced in the sense of the traditional Republican versus Democrat view of things, you can definitely listen to, to his take on stuff. He's biased towards libertarians, obviously, but by definition, because he's a libertarian, he is, you're going to get a more nuanced view of both the Republican and the Democratic side. He also put me on to Steve Simone, which, good times with Steve Simone, and I've told him this on, on Instagram, I hope he brings that podcast back. That's a podcast that, if you're ever in a bad mood, you just listen to an episode of that. And Steve is just like a such a wholesome fucking good person that just spends his time fucking doing stand-up comedy, like family-friendly stand-up comedy, and then volunteering the rest of his time at children's sick wards and hospitals and shit. His energy is just so pure and positive that you listen to that if you want to feel good, if you want to get in a good mood. Sadly, he stopped doing his podcast some time ago. I believe it was around COVID, and I heard through the podcast Grapevine that his both his parents got really ill, and they thought they were on their deathbed, and thankfully, they were not, or at least I believe, and I hope is the case, but I hope he definitely continues to do his podcast again. And so many other folks like Fahim Anwar, Big J Okerson, Dan Soder, Danish and O'Neill, Joe List, the, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Like all these people, I first heard of them on Ari Shafir's Skeptic Tank, which was an absolute fucking treat. The fucking tastemaker, this guy. And in many ways, Ari bridged, Ari ended the West Coast, East Coast beef, quote unquote beef. Because there was like a. Not, I don't want to call it podcast wars or like an actual beef between comics, so East Coast versus West Coast comics, but there was an unspoken divide, at least in my opinion. A palpable kind of, you know, if there's allegiances, you know where everyone's allegiance lies. <laughs> and Ari was a West Coast comic, comedy store comic, who moved to New York and kind of like bridged that gap and brought all those bar barriers down after that move, I, f I feel, by bringing a lot of the East Coast folks onto his podcast, like the Big J's, 
and then introducing them to to Rogan and then them getting on Rogan and in doing so blowing up to the rest of the world and to the West Coast and kind of just melding that comedic world, comedic podcast world. But yeah, man, he chose after, what, 12, 13 years, his first episode, according to what I'm looking at, came out, which was with Kurt Metzger, September 28th, 2011. Fun fact, the Spun Today podcast started September 29th, but 2014, three years later. But yeah, first episode, September 28th, 2011, last episode, June 7th, 2023. What a fucking run. Round of applause for Ari Shafir and the Ari Shafir Skeptic Tank. Now, he did say that, one, he's not going away. He's still going to do everybody else's podcast. So I'm definitely happy for that and, and to get you know, his perspective that way. Although it won't be the same, obviously. But we also have this backlog catalog of hundreds of episodes that we will hopefully always be able to go back and listen to at our leisure whenever we want, which I have and plan to continue doing so. Now, I did hear him say on... I believe it was Joe List's podcast that he he's contemplating just taking down the Skeptic Tank podcast altogether, like just removing it from the internet, which he definitely shouldn't do because one, if it's on the internet already, which it is, all the episodes are, they'll always be, people will always repost and put them up and it's just going to be a bitch for people to track down and find, I guess. But that he has thought of doing so just to protect certain guests from future pc culture bullshit down the line because he's you know five years from now who who the fuck knows what people are going to be upset about and some shit that we said 10 years ago on the podcast in fucking 2011 2012 that's going to get one of my friends canceled just because we were joking about fucking salt or something and you know five years from now salt is going to be the new n-word or whatever the fuck and to that i say fuck that don't give in to that type of shit because the act of removing your podcast would be giving into that type of shit. And that is so antithetical to who you are, Mr. Ari Shafir, and who you have been and how you've moved to date. So just know that your true fans will always have your back, which was essentially the point all along, right? At least I like to think so. Plus, selfishly, I don't want to have to scour the internet to find old hidden episodes of Ari Shafir's Skeptic Tank. <laughs> but yeah, man, if you guys haven't checked it out, definitely do Ari Shafir's Skeptic Tank. The end of an era. I still can't fucking believe it, but thank you, Ari, and all the folks that helped put together, edit, promote, post Ari Shafir's Skeptic Tank, and absolutely to each and every one of the guests that have been on it in the past. Shout out to Ari Shafir's Skeptic Tank. I will link to it in the episode notes for folks to check out and that folks was episode 241 of the sponsor day podcast thank you very much for rocking out with me taking the time to listen i really really appreciate it if you'd like to support this show if you'd like to support the sponsor day podcast i'd really really appreciate that as well there's a bunch of ways that you can do so and i'm going to tell you all about them right now until next time peace What's up, folks? Tony here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast as much as I enjoy producing it for you. Here are a few quick ways you can help support this show. You can support the Spun Today podcast by going to spuntoday.com forward slash support. There you'll find my merch section. 
where you can cop the iconic Podcasts vs. Anybody t-shirt in a wide variety of different colors and all different sizes. Also, if you're into cycling, you can cop the super soft, comfortable, minimalist design Spun Today Bike Club t-shirt. Also available in a bunch of different colors and all different sizes. There are a few other designs of different types of t-shirts. Definitely go there and check it out. SpunToday.com forward slash support. It's the merch section where you can also get a dope coffee mug. I have coffee mugs with the brand new redesigned Spun Today logo on one side and the tagline that I end every show with on the other which is start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. The mug is available in both black and white because we don't discriminate here at the Spun Today podcast. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash support and check out the merch section. You can support the Spun Today podcast by checking out my writing. You can go to spuntoday.com forward slash free writing and check out some of my free association writing, which is intended to be some cathartic free writing, but oftentimes doubles down as motivation for myself and others. At spuntoday.com forward slash short stories, you can read a bunch of the different short stories that I've written and actually listen to the audiobook versions of those short stories there as well. Another way you can help support my writing is by going to spuntoday.com forward slash books and checking out what I have in store for sale. Digital copies are available in all formats, whether it be Kindle, iBooks, or a different type of e-reader. You can also purchase paperback copies if that's your preferred reading method. Currently available, I have my nonfiction, Make Way For You, which is a collection of freely written thoughts that were curated and put together as tips for getting out of your own way. Also available is my debut time travel novel titled Fractal. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash books to show your support. Support the Spun Today podcast by following me on social at Spun Today on Twitter, at Spun Today on Instagram. Please also check out and like my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Spun Today and subscribe to my YouTube page as well. On my YouTube page, not only will you get these full length episodes, but you'll also get to check out some chopped up clips and bonus content. To get to my YouTube page, just search Spun Today on YouTube or click on any of the YouTube icons on the footer of my website. Also, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever it is that you're listening. It really does help. The Spun Today newsletter is available to each and every one of my listeners absolutely for free. All you have to do is go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and drop in your email address. What I'm going to do is brighten up everybody's least favorite day of the week by delivering five curated things within my weekly newsletter every Monday at noon. You're going to receive a photo of the week, a recommended podcast of the week. I listen to tons of podcasts from an array of varied interests. I cherry pick the very best ones so that you can check them out. I also share a video of the week, which can be anything from a tasty recipe to a dope rap battle to an enlightening TED talk. I also share a quote of the week. And finally, for my fellow wordsmiths out there, a word of the week so that you can step up your vocab. Again, this curated list is yours absolutely free by going to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and dropping in your email address and you can unsubscribe at any time. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe, drop in your email address and you'll get the very next one. If you want to help support the Spun Today podcast financially, you can do so by going to spuntoday.com forward slash support. Here you'll find a few different ways that you can do so. 
you can shop on Amazon. But first, go to my website, spuntoday.com forward slash support. Click on the Amazon banner, which will take you to Amazon's website where you do your shopping like you normally do. It will not cost you anything extra, but I will get credit for driving traffic to their website. Another cool way that you can help support this show is through Patreon, where you can set up reoccurring donations to my podcast, whether it be $1 per show, $2 per show, etc. And depending on how much you choose to pledge, you will receive some Patreon perks in return. Things like free writing pieces, free bookmarks, free digital copies of my books, etc. Again, my Patreon link can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash support. You can also set up similar reoccurring payments via my Ko-fi page. And if you want to send a one-time happiness bomb donation, if you will, you can do so via my PayPal link. Again, all of which can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash support. If you're a fellow creative, a cool way that you can help support the Spun Today podcast and actually be part of the podcast is by filling out my five-question questionnaire located at spuntoday.com forward slash questionnaire. Here you'll find five open questions related to your craft, your art, what inspires you to create, what type of unrelated hobbies you're into, and what motivates you to get your work done. You can choose to remain anonymous or plug your website and your work. And once you submit your questionnaire, I read your responses on a future episode of the Spun Today podcast. It's completely free at no cost to you. And what I like to say about it is that if your responses could potentially spark inspiration in someone else, why not share that? spuntoday.com forward slash questionnaire. And as always, folks, substitute the mysticism with hard work and start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. Thanks for listening. I love you, Aiden. I love you, Daddy. I love you, Grayson. I love you, Daddy.